Hello, it's Andrew Marshall here. I thought I'd pop up before this week's edition of The Meaningful Life because it's a very special edition. We have reached 100 episodes. Now, that's an incredible achievement. Most podcasts don't make it past about five. And not only have we made it to 100, we've got a very special guest that I'll be introducing very shortly, but we've also been nominated for a Best British Podcast Award in the category Sex and Relationships. I'd like to obviously thank my team for helping me reach this landmark. And in particular, I'd like to thank the supporters through Patreon and the subscribers directly with Apple and Spotify who help me every week by providing some of the costs that goes into making this podcast. We tend to think that things on the internet are free, but they're not. Admittedly, I give my time for nothing. But um, it does cost to get this episode edited, to get the social media done so people find out about it, and to get all the audio processed so it comes at the best possible listening quality. Now, we have some wonderful people who support us through Patreon or subscribe directly to the bonus material through Apple and Spotify. And I would love for you to help celebrate this 100th anniversary to go mad and become one of those supporters because it makes a huge difference. There's only a certain amount of time that I can support this podcast out of my own pocket before I have to say, and I don't want to do that. So please help and become a supporter. You don't just get my eternal thanks, which you will get, but you also get the bonus material, which over the last few episodes has been getting meatier and meatier. Nearly always I save back a topic to discuss with my witnesses because we've often got so much to talk about, we can't fit it all into the regular episode. You also get the three things they know deep down to be true, and those are nearly always very revealing and actually helpful for your own emotional journey. So, welcome to the 100th edition. I have a guest who is very special, somebody I've admired for a very long time. You're going to really enjoy this episode. When it's finished, please go along to my Patreon page, which is accessed through my website. The website is www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find details of the podcast and how you can become a subscriber through Patreon. Or at the end of the episode, go and ask for the bonus material by subscribing directly if you listen on Apple and Spotify. So here it comes, the 100th edition of The Meaningful Life. We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. What are the emotions that you find the hardest to deal with? Take a few seconds to think of your answer. What problems, stresses, or issues do you keep coming up against time and time again, but can't break through? Once again, I'll give you a moment to bring them to mind. Now, here is a radical idea. Perhaps it didn't start with you. You don't just inherit blue eyes and the family silver, but trauma can be passed down the generations too, along with unspoken messages like don't get angry or don't rock the boat, and also old coping mechanisms like getting flooded or fleeing. 
My guest is Julia Samuel, who's a psychotherapist working first for the NHS and later in private practice, and author of the bestseller Grief Works. Her new book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. Julia is the founder, patron of the Child Bereavement UK and vice president of the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy. So how did you first become aware of the idea that we inherit love and loss, Julia? Gosh, I think from myself, really. My, both of my parents um, had very significant and traumatic losses, and they were of the generation that you forget and move on and don't talk about it. And, you know, I was well into my training as a therapist when I, when I had that, that light bulb moment of, gosh, I'm, you know, spending my time with grief and bereavement and loss. And really, I haven't suffered any losses, but I am in some way finding a way of dealing with the losses that my parents never dealt with. So what were your parents' losses? So by the time my mother was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died very suddenly and traumatically. My gosh, that's just a, like a, a wipeout, isn't it? Yes, she was an orphan. And my father, his father and his brother again died very suddenly and traumatically. And there were these black and white photographs around the house, but I didn't know anything about my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. I knew their names vaguely, but my parents didn't tell stories. They didn't talk about them. But when I did talk to my mother about, for instance, the death of her brother who'd been killed in the war, he'd been killed at Arn in Arnhem, she reacted as if she was that 17-year-old girl whose brother had died. It was absolutely raw and untouched grief inside her that she had never talked about. What does untouched grief look like? It's very raw. So grief is naturally an adaptive process. And over time, you find a way of living with the loss and the pain is the agent of change. So as you get a kind of hit of the pain through your system, and grief is very much embodied as well as kind of in our thoughts, as we allow it through our system, we incrementally adjust and let ourselves know that this person that we love has died. And we don't get over it, but we learn to live with it and they become part of us because the love for them never dies. And we have connection to them through memories, through talking, through sort of touchstones like wearing their watch or looking at their photograph. And my mum, the rawness of her grief, she had never talked about her brother, Tony. And so it was like she was completely hit by it as she talked about him with the shock of it. And that moment of being told that he was dead was as if she, she'd gone back. I think it was 55 years at that point. So it was stuck in time. And that's the difference between grief. Because you can feel sad 30 years later, but it's in the present that you feel sad. Whereas traumatic grief, like my mum's, time hasn't changed. It's stuck in time. And somehow this has transferred down to you and your generation. How? I think it's a, a combination of things. So, you know, what the theories say, and I'd like to know whether you agree with them or not, is that the trauma or the difficulty that isn't processed in one generation does get passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And it's passed down in two routes. One is behavioural. You know, you learn from your parents by observing their behaviours. So 
we learned as a family not to talk about things that were painful, to distract ourselves, to anesthetize ourselves, to self-medicate. But also it can be passed down epigenetically that your mother, although the, the genetics is influenced by the father as well, obviously, so you have a predisposition genetically to be highly sensitive or not. But the genetics in your mother's womb passed down heightened fear, heightened levels of cortisol, heightened response to danger, to the threat system, if you are very traumatized. The thing I want to add, which I did say in the book, but it isn't what people kind of remembered, is that it isn't inevitable. So that, you know, you can have a genetic predisposition to anxiety, you then have the genetic influence of the epigenetics, and then you're very likely to be kind of very highly wired. And you kind of think to yourself, what's wrong with me? Why am I so sensitive? Nothing has happened to me. But you could have a sister who doesn't have that. And what I think is the most fascinating of this whole idea is that this is going to be passed down like past the parcel until somebody is prepared to feel the feelings and open the parcel. Now, that is extraordinary. I can guess in your family, you are the person who was prepared to open the parcel. And guess what happened in my family? You were the one that opened the parcel. Exactly. Did your siblings... No, I have a sister who's a very practical woman, and I am the complete and utter opposite. Grief has also been passed down my family. I think actually it's not so much grief, but it's a sort of a way of coping that has been passed down in my family. And if you could have an unofficial motto across the front door, and I often ask my clients this, you know, if there was a family motto that somebody had carved across the front door, what would it be? In our family, it would be talking about feelings makes them worse. Out of interest, what would be carved over the top of your family? Ours would be put on a good show. Like, <laughs> make, make sure everything looks like it's fine. It's, you're absolutely, you know, catastrophically emotionally upset and distraught. But if you go out into the world, if you're with other people and most significantly with each other, put on a good show. I mean, I think the, we have a, a bond because the First World War is still being lived in my family too. My great uncle died on the Somme. And when my great, great grandfather heard the news, he went upstairs for a week and returned a week later and said, we will never talk about our son again. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And that is basically how our family, until I came along, (laughs) and tell all our secrets to the whole world, has always dealt with stuff. I mean, I think the piece that I... I really learned from writing my book was having compassion for the generations before us. To some extent, you and I, Andrew, have the luxury of being able to feel what we feel and the knowledge that we can learn and adapt and grow. And, you know, if you were the parents of someone in the First World War, you had no knowledge and everybody was grieving someone very significant. So to some extent, they had very little choice but to survive and get on. And the fear that the grief would overwhelm them and stop them living was so great that they had to kind of shut it down. And that's what, of course, they modeled to my parents' generation, your parents' generation. And then they were in the Second World War, and that's all they knew as well. So I, you know, I think we are very fortunate being of a generation 
that is allowed to feel. And we're very lucky being of a generation that we are changing it for our children and our grandchildren and that we have so much more knowledge that we can call on and these conversations that people can hear. I mean, of course, you know, our parents and grandparents didn't have a clue and had nowhere to go to really to understand it. I agree with you 100%. You know, you can't, I can't blame my great, great grandfather because, you know, I'm sure his father was dealing with the same stuff and, you know, I could pass it all the way back. You know, our family were Huguenot refugees. I'm sure that was not exactly a bowl of cherries either. (laughs) But what I think is really important is unless we actually accept the pain and open it up, and actually allow ourselves to feel it, we can't actually go for the forgiveness. If you just go straight to the forgiveness, you're actually jumping over the healing. What do you think about that? Yes. I mean, how I would frame it is that pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces us to face this reality that we didn't want and we didn't choose. And in facing it, we learn to adapt and live with it. And the things that we do to block the pain are, in the end, the things that do us harm. And it's interesting that you say forgiveness. I mean, I don't even know if that is the right word, because I think you're talking about relationship losses and living losses, which I think we experience exactly the same way as grief. I think they have all the same experiences, emotions, feelings, and behaviors. But really, I think it's more about accommodating Because we can't always forgive and we certainly can't always accept the terrible things that have happened. But I think the accommodation is this idea from Tonkin that if you, you know, the loss is everything at the beginning, it kind of overwhelms you. And then if you allow yourself to grieve, you build your life around the loss. And so it is part of you and you can't kind of pretend it's not there, but you do learn to live with it and overcome it and grow through it. But you don't kind of it doesn't change it, that it's still there. So if people are worried about what they're going to be passing on to their children, and they're thinking of all the trauma that they've actually gone through that, you know, belongs to them, so to speak, I think you have a beautiful quote that I'm going to, to give, which I think is reassuring for them and helpful. So I'm going to give you the quote, and I'd like you to expand it, please. When the feelings flow through, whether painful or joyous, everything is fine. But when emotions are shut down, that's when the dysfunction sets in. Yes. I mean, emotions are transmitters of information that were kind of wired evolutionary to let us know whether we're under threat or whether we're in love or whether we, what state we're in to inform us and inform our thinking of how to respond. And so when we allow the emotion and we then connect with the emotion with our thinking and using our kind of rational mind then the two work together and they can support us to make healthy responses and kind of good decisions. When we block the emotions, we still feel them very powerfully in our body, sort of somatically. And then they influence all our other emotions because they haven't been released by coming through us. So the kind of joy is blocked, the happiness is blocked, and you can really contaminate all of your feelings by blocking them. But also if we kind of interpret our feelings through our thinking, we can exacerbate our feelings. So if we're angry with the feelings and have a bad relationship with them, and then often it's the self-attack, what I call a shitty committee, that you can then (laughs) 
can you can then make the feeling so much worse by how you say to yourself, well, you're a bloody idiot. You shouldn't be feeling this. You know, you should be getting on. You should be fine or get over it. You know, all those horrible kind of very critical voices. Yeah, I call that the second arrow. We've been hit by an arrow of adversity and then we get hold of another arrow and just shove it in the same the same <laughs> spot and rootle around in the wound to make certain we feel all the pain. And that it gets infected. <laughs> it kind of really yeah. sort of spreads itself across you. You can't stop the arrows of adversity, but you can actually stop shoving a knife in the same spot. So you don't just see couples or individuals in your practice, you see various members of the family. What's that like? Because it seems like an awful lot of information at the same time. I mean, it is much more of a juggle because, I mean, I worked with all of these families in the book on Zoom and I don't think I'd ever have got them into my room at the same time. So sort of practically speaking, it was really helpful. But it's kind of reading their faces and, you know, you're missing one or their tone of voice. But it's incredibly powerful. And I think, and I want to know what you think, we've been much too focused on the individual and not recognising the influence and the power of both the family system, the cultural system, the community that you live in that influences our well-being. And that an individual going to therapy to sort out their problem, they then go back into their family and they're trying to translate what they've adapted or learned or grown through their therapy to people who haven't been part of that process. And that can be really quite hard work and not very successful. So when a family comes together and are willing enough to hear each other, and I think that was the power of all of the case studies that I did, is that something happens when through a facilitator like me, you're forced to hear someone else's version without coming in with your own. We can be so kind of determined for our pathway of the story to be the right one. And then there's this very black and white combat between family members of who's right and who's wrong. And that can really cause enormous fractures. So by having a collective understanding, it can change your relationship with the other person, with their roles. They're not just the fixer or just the loser. They actually have lots of other capacities. And it was incredibly empowering to watch how just the simple time to listen and hear and speak to each other, how it could be transformative. Because often people in families have a particular role, like the peacemaker or the one in my family is the man who says the things that shouldn't be said. Did you see all of these family positions being played out on your screen? I saw some of the family positions being played out. I think what I saw most universally was the fear of discomfort and pain and that the kind of need to block it and protect each other often. It's very painful as an adult parent witnessing your child in pain. You kind of want to sort it out or deny it. And, you know, so that was very powerful when the children, the young people could speak and then the, you know, young adults could speak and seeing the parents sort of letting that flow through their system and what a relief it was for the children to be heard, you know, to be allowed was incredibly powerful. Because often if you allow somebody to be upset and they actually travel through the upset, they often begin to repair themselves. And if you leap in too soon, you stop your 
adult children from actually being able to reach that point. And they also don't feel as if they're allowed to have the feeling as well. When you would say, of course, they can be upset, but it's very difficult to sit with that upset without leaping in, but so beautiful if you can do it. And I'll tell you the other thing that I find is if you apologize as a parent for something you did perhaps unwittingly, or you did with full conscious but didn't actually realize the full impact, actually apologizing for it makes a huge, huge difference to your children. It really does. And there were quite a few instances of that in the book where, you know, parents are imperfect beings. Families are very imperfect. You know, they're messy, chaotic where you love most, you hate most, and you make your deepest mistakes. And yet when there is enough love, you know, that's underpinning all of that complexity and fights and that you are allowed to have rupture and repair and that you can find a way of communicating, that is incredibly powerful and supportive for families. And part of that is recognizing when you muck up, you know, when you make the mistakes, and they can be small mistakes, like I forgot to take your gym kit to school, to big mistakes where you completely misunderstood them or you encouraged them to go to a particular course on a university or, or you didn't like their boyfriend, where you really recognize how damaging that can be is very, very curative. And it's the acknowledgement of it that then allows the child to trust you because it's trust often that gets broken when we make mistakes because you, the injury sits in both of your bodies in the memory and you kind of can't quite go forward because there's something that has been a bit shaken through it. And if that happens regularly, of course, then, you know, the distrust is very big and the communication gets smaller and the relationship gets damaged. I love the idea of rupture and repair. And I think we're going to look at it in the context of one particular family that you have in the book. Now, these are the Thompson family, and we've got three generations of women you saw. We've got the grandmother, whose name is Hilary. We've got Kate, who is the daughter, and Daisy, who is the eldest granddaughter. So this is a story about holding and letting go, but it also shows how material gets passed down through the generations to people who probably didn't even meet the original parcel giver. So tell me about the Thompson family. So they were a very powerful family in the sense that the women in their family really carried the love from generation to generation. And, you know, Kate said, We've been disappointed and hurt by men for many, many generations. And their kind of belief was that a a mother's love is at the center of their being and incredibly sort of vital and meaningful. And so when, of course, her daughter Daisy was going to university, it really shook her because you know, it's a living loss, that transition between being at home where you kind of know really what's going on with your child to them going to university where you really don't have a clue. And the space that they leave in your house is sort of echoey and silent and and painful. And also the worry, are they going to be okay? Are they going to get run over? Are they going to get raped? But also the feeling of loss, like she's not my baby anymore. So that was why they came to me to 
see how they could navigate this transition so that she could give Daisy her roots of love, but also the wings to fly. And I can see how useful it is to understand this family inheritance, because otherwise you would think, well, you know, this is natural, normal daughter going off to university material. But actually, if the primary connections have been from mother to daughter and from grandmother to, you're actually losing something much greater at that point and something more fundamental is at risk. And then you sort of realise, actually, there's some stuff in here about me that needs to be worked through rather than just focusing everything and, you know, tracking your daughter's phone so you know where she is sort of kind of material, which you won't be at all surprised to know that, yes, she did it. So let's actually look at where this message that, uh, you know, men are basically wastrels and it's only your mother that you can rely on. Where did that come from in this family? So it came from kind of devastating losses, really, that Hillary's grandfather had died very young. So her mother was brought up by an aunt because her mother had died too. And then her mother's husband, she'd met very briefly and he left her and the marriage didn't last. But she's kind of remained romantically in love with him all of her life. And then Hillary herself and Kate's dad They were married for a long time, but he came out as gay about 10 years before I saw them. So there's this idea that men are unreliable, they leave you, they're not who they say they are, but the women kind of remain and the women hold on to you and keep you safe. But they also can go mad. Elsie went mad for a while, but when her granddaughter needed her, somehow she came back to sanity again. And it it was their meaning of being needed that really kind of brought her back to earth in some ways. It's fascinating. Do you think we sort of unconsciously choose, you know, if you're a woman who has a history of uh, unreliable men in the family, do you think you're unconsciously actually looking for somebody? So although Hillary would never have said, oh, what I'm looking for in a husband is a closeted homosexual, that some deeper part of her said, actually, I want somebody who is going to be emotionally elusive as my father. I do think that, I mean, you must have seen this many times that, and there's a, you know, there's research that supports it, that we unconsciously play out the unfinished business with our parents or the significant people in our life, in our love relationships, hoping that this time we're going to get the repair, we're going to get our needs met. But actually, we choose the people who are like the people that abandoned us or left us or betrayed us, and then they do the same. So the work, if you like, is to kind of recognize and grieve the kind of parent that you've had and recognize that so that you're aware not to, because it's so familiar. There's that thing of familiarity that unconsciously and consciously you're drawn to. We, We feel uncomfortable when someone's really kind of decent and nice and supportive when we're used to someone who kind of is there and they're not there, that thing of variable reward where they kind of come and you feel like the sun and the moon and the stars has come out, but then they disappear and don't reply to your texts. And you can get very hooked on that. And I think it's through your part, you know, your neural pathways. It's very, very addictive. So you don't like the phrase empty nest. Why don't you like the phrase empty nest? I think it in some way 
kind of disses the importance of that phase of life. And also it isn't an emptiness because change in families is a collective business. Families are always ongoing through change. And if they can support themselves through this transition, you know, Kate will have a close relationship with Daisy. She's not going to lose Daisy, but it is a reconfiguring of the relationship as Daisy as an adult where, you know, she has to be allowed to make her choices, live her life, but she will come back and have a close relationship with her mum. I think the idea of an empty nest is like they're gone and you've lost them forever, which just in thriving families isn't really the case. And what I also thought was good about this case history is it showed up the issue of boundaries and that how Daisy was not responsible for her mother's grief or tending it. Talk me through this. Yeah, I mean, boundaries in families are so interesting, aren't they? Because we're so close and you kind of can feel and think that they belong to you and that you can kind of get in there and sort everybody out. But particularly through transitions, knowing that you're responsible to someone, to that boundary, to that line, but you're not responsible for somebody is incredibly releasing and empowering. So that, you know, Daisy was responsible to be kind to her mum, to be reliable, to have a deal about if she texted or whether she didn't or what, how they were going to negotiate the contact. But it absolutely wasn't her job to keep her mum happy. And knowing that freed her then to invest in and her time in herself and making her own relationships. And also it freed her mum to know you know, now is a shift for me. I need to kind of think, who am I now? What am I going to do with myself? How am I going to get my needs met, given that they're not going to be used parenting all the time? So let's look at another way that your work can be useful. And this is the whole subject of step families. And we have the Taylor Smith family. Paul and Julie have been separated for 10 years, but they have a terrible Christmas fight that sends one of their sons off to Berlin. Hello, welcome to Berlin, son. <laughs> yes. So your clients was the father and mother separated, but actually both in other relationships, and their shared son, Ashley. Now, how do you help families that are pretty, you know, the idea is that if you separate or get divorced, that sort of washes everything away and you start again. That's the theory, except we know it's not really like that. So how do you unpick all of that stuff? I mean, it was very painful and you're right. You know, I think a relationship can end, but when you have children and you separate, you know, that never ends because you are bound to each other for life as parents to those children. And how you are in relationship, how you separate has an enormous impact on the child's well-being. You know, conflicted adult relationships are the single worst predictor for children's outcomes. So it's not the separation, it's how they separate. And, you know, the hate can get played out through the children but also in front of the children. And that is incredibly destabilizing. And what happened with Julie and Paul was that they, you know, they'd both come from insecure backgrounds. And so they inherited, you know, ways of not knowing really how to communicate, not knowing how to regulate, not knowing how to balance themselves. And the love that they'd felt for each other kind of was enough to begin with. But then the wear and tear of life and children and the inability to repair after fights was what sort of tore them apart in the end. 
And Ashley, it's so interesting how, I don't know if you see this in your practice, Ashley was the one that said, he's the son, 15-year-old son, who said, listen, you need to sort this out. This is not good for me. And I, I really kind of can't bear this anymore. And the thing that kind of influenced them was both him, but also they were frightened that Ashley would go the way of Dan, that they'd lose both their children through the fights and the conflict. And the thing that came through with us, I mean, I find them difficult to be with because the anger, that the resentment that sort of, it wasn't just the 10 years of their separation, but the years that they'd kind of unsuccessfully been together. And the price that Julie had paid for being the mum, you know, the invisible labour, not being able to work, having very little money, all of that was very legitimate fury. And in some ways it wasn't Paul's fault either, but there was so much residual rage that kept on being played out, even when they were talking about, I'm going to meet you at four o'clock. And so one of the things that we had to kind of set up was how they were going to communicate. And the thing that came through was the complexity of, of what's called loyalty binds, that whenever Ashley was with Paul, he felt in some way he was abandoning and being disloyal to Julie. And when he was with Julie, he felt he was being disloyal and abandoning his dad, Paul. And so if they could find a way that recognised that they gave him kind of love and permission to be in relationship and a close relationship with each other, but also for Ashley to see his dad on his own so that he could feel his dad for himself. He didn't constantly have to share him with his stepsister and his stepmom. That was the thing that in the end turned it around. I'd be fascinated to know how you deal with residual rage. Because the typical thing is, you know, if you've just got one client in the room, you as a therapist sit there and listen to their residual rage until it's been blown through. But if you are the subject of the residual rage, i.e. the other clients, there's about 30 seconds of that you can stand before you either fight back or are traumatised by it. So what do you do with this residual rage? I mean, I think with Julie, her life was much better. And I think that was really important to that she had a partner, she had a job. So she wasn't in the peak of the rage, but the residual rage, you're right. So I think the thing that helped her was me legitimizing and acknowledging that the rage was an expression of hurt and fear that had been in her body really since she was a child and letting her know that she could feel this, that she could find ways of expressing it and probably outside this particular conversation. So exercise really helps with rage, punching a pillow really helps. But also the kind of pattern that helps with anger is that if you just express it, you can exacerbate it. So I kind of gave her a tool that she would take some exercise, she'd punch a pillow, she would do a journal, and then she would watch something funny because you can't be furious and laugh at the same time. And so that kind of pattern enabled her incrementally to kind of release the, it that was in her body. There are some uh, lovely ideas in there of sort of unusual homework from therapists. There was a couple who healed because the two of them and their son, I think it was, watched every episode of Modern Family together and I assume talked about it too. Yes, I think it was because families are so atomized with children up in their room playing on their phone and their parents kind of playing on their phones. 
whenever they talked, it, they just fought. And he was very unhappy child who was being bullied at school. He, he was very small and that kind of really affected his confidence. But there was something very stabilizing about regularly sitting down together at a particular time after supper and watching Modern Family together. And I think it's rituals, that kind of ritual that they knew they would be together at that time. It's very funny. They knew they'd do it the next night and that that is connecting without it kind of eyeballing each other and having to tell each other how you feel. It's quite cozy. And the kind of telly does the work for you, but there's something connecting about the joint activity, which I think we lose a lot now when everyone goes and watches their own thing on their own. So can you heal your family? That is a very big question, Andrew. I know. And there's a hundred only... thousand words in answering it. <laughs> because I'm torn in two directions, you know. I can heal myself or I can make a, a jolly good tie to it. And, you know, that hopefully will have a knock-on effect in the family. But I don't think I can heal my family. But, you know, I work with individuals and couples. You work with families. So I would be fascinated to hear your thoughts on this. I think where families like siblings with their adult siblings with their parents can really be helped is if all of them are willing to come and do the work and to kind of bear the discomfort of it because they realize the pain of the fracture of the sibling rivalry of the fighting out about money or time or whatever it is, is causing them more harm. And that sometimes by coming together that you can really heal. And so in a way, your kind of love for each other overcomes the fury that you feel for each other. I think there are times that you have to recognize that you as a, a family system with your siblings or your parents, that there are limits of what they're prepared to do. And so then you're right, you have to do your own work. But I think what's really important is that the transmitted trauma and patterns of behavior stop with you for the generations after you, for your children and your grandchildren. And that you really do have power over how you adapt and change and grow even as an adult with adult children, will influence them. And that can be incredibly curative and important for you and your family. And if you're interested in finding out more about that theme, there's another episode of The Meaningful Life where we talk about, the, in this case, angry fathers passing down the anger to the next generation. And if you listen to the episode with Terry Real, do you know the psychotherapist Terry Real? Absolutely fascinating. And he was able to stop being an angry man. And he has two sons who are not angry. If you look for the episode, you'll find that absolutely fascinating. And anger is an expression of hurt, isn't it? Women tend to kind of go inside and ruminate and men tend to act out and express their hurt in that as anger. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. 
So let me tell you about my Substack newsletter, because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mixture of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a better and more meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it'll become a shared space where we can talk about the things in the program. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will be in the show notes. We have details of articles I've written. There's one on the zombie marriage. There's one on sex and how it's changed over the last 30 years. And there's all sorts of ways that we link one Meaningful Life episode to another one. So there's lots of back episodes and it's very easy to get lost in them. And you'll find that the Substack newsletter sort of often will have a roundup and combine various themes together so you can sort of navigate your way through them. So once again, look at the show notes or go to the meaningfullife.substack.com. You could also, while you're thinking about the Meaningful Life, you could become a supporter. And if you become a supporter, we're all always very willing to hear from you. In fact, we're willing to hear from everybody. If you've got a dilemma you'd like us to talk about, go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast and you'll find a place to send us a letter. And I've shared a letter with Julia that's been written in. Thank you very much. And here comes the letter. My husband and I have been married for five years. For the first three, we were besotted. It was a fairy tale romance. Against all odds, we were blissfully in love gradually things changed. I've had a lot of financial stress recently and serious illness and some trouble with my nearly adult children. My husband has become more and more impatient and angry and has at times been aggressive and violent towards my boys and verbally aggressive towards myself. He says I don't give him enough attention and seems jealous of my children, who actually get very little attention being mostly self-sufficient. He calls them molly-cuddled mother's boys and says they should get out and earn a wage. They're at school and uni. He used to be so gentle and kind, but we can't even talk for five minutes without it spiralling upwards. He was abandoned by his mother as a child and had a pretty awful time after that, but is now living with her and won't hear a word against her. He has left me to live with her several times before for a few days, but has always come back. This time it seems irreparable, as the loss of trust and pain is so bad on both sides. I had an abusive childhood too, with an alcoholic but loving father and a horrible mother who seemed to despise me. We are both super sensitive creatures. I am at a loss as to what to do, whether to give up or not. Each time I see him, I cry so much I'm exhausted, and I just don't know whether it can ever work. Well, Julia, the first thing I thought when I saw this is, I think we have some generations of trauma and pain here, haven't we? We really do. They're both, obviously their parents have really suffered in their own way and have directly passed down, you know, the inability to love, the inability to be predictable, the inability to stay and weather difficult storms and have acted it out on their children and both you know, the the wife and the husband are really suffering as a result. It's a very painful story. So I think it helps to know it didn't start with you. But the next step is what are we going to do about it? I mean, the thing I was thinking about, you know, they both have mothers who, you know, abandoned them or were horrible to them. And so that will be their template about how to be in relationship, you know, to have very insecure attachment and kind of that there isn't enough coming from scarcity, you know, that not having all of it 
is in some way intentionally done to make you suffer. And these are very complex issues. And I mean, I honestly thought, I can't see how this couple can begin to build the bridges of understanding each other and communicating openly and honestly and with, you know, feelings of of anger as well as love unless they get the support of a third person of a therapist. I just couldn't see that they could ever, because the moment they have a difficult conversation, it triggers them both into their trauma and they've both been traumatized. And so I imagine, I sort of thinking they both need EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing for their trauma. And they need couple work with someone like you or me. And I mean, I think for a bit of emergency self-preservation, bringing in the word trigger and understanding that concept, because I think both of them will recognise when they are triggered, and to be able to say to each other, I'm feeling triggered, and to just, you know, step to the other side of the kitchen and just regroup for a bit and then to talk again. So I think to be aware of triggering and that actually, if either one or both of you are triggered, you can't have a conversation about anything. You've got to self-soothe. And please don't expect the other person to soothe you because they're triggered too. And then when you've actually had the stepping away, to think about how you can self-soothe, what will actually help you get back to the point that you can talk again. I think what people don't kind of recognise about trauma is that it completely switches off your capacity to think and feel. You know, the trauma is wired from an evolutionary perspective to protect you from threat of of life. You know, that you need to freeze so that you're not seen or run or fight. And so all of your capacity to think, to feel, to be empathic goes completely offline and you're heightened, you're kind of go to sort of fourth gear and clench everything. And so you can't even virtually look at each other in the eye, let alone hear each other. So you're completely right that if you can sort of take time out, take a breath, make a cup of tea, maybe write a few things down, maybe be aware of what you're feeling in your body, breathe into those feelings, allow those emotions to come through your body, maybe walk around the house a bit. Because I think shifting your body helps shift your feelings and tells your body you've moved and so you might not be in flight. And then come back. And I think, you know, if they don't get help from other people, the thing, the basic thing that they could do is have a deal that they're going to speak for not that long, 20 minutes, They're going to have a few minutes each to say what their experience is. And before the other person replies, that they reflect back what they've heard them say so that they don't automatically just jump in and say their version of the story and rehearsing that while they're not listening to what their partner is saying. And that might slowly help them kind of recognize and hear each other a bit more clearly because it at the moment, he particularly, I think, but maybe her too, they're totally unable to hear each other's stories. Yeah. And I think they're actually finding it very difficult to listen to their own stories because it's very difficult to listen to other people if we've never actually listened to ourselves. And so just a sort of a bit of journaling and actually writing down, you know, this is my truth, this is my story, and actually hearing it yourself, because sometimes we're trying to convince the other person because we're trying to convince ourselves that it's actually true. And you'll never convince them that it's true, but you could you could actually 
find your own truths and you could hear yourself. And I think that would help a lot as well. So I hope that has helped. And if you've got a dilemma like that that you'd like to share with us, I will scan the universe for experts to come and speak to you about them. So please go to www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcasts and uh, you'll find the form there. So, Julia, thank you very much for being my witness on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful is relationships. You know, that is the centre of my life. You know, my, my husband, I've been married 42 years. That's, you know, profoundly meaningful. My four children, my nine grandchildren, you know, my family is really what makes my life meaningful. But work as well. You know, I'm very lucky to do a job that feels useful and, and helpful and gives me the connection of relationship, which is incredibly powerful for me. And are you able to forgive yourself now you understand what you've passed on to your children and your grandchildren? I'm more self-compassionate. So I kind of, I treat myself more kindly. I don't know if I've completely forgiven myself for all the terrible mistakes I've made. I think kinder is possibly the a better ambition than forgiveness, but I think we can hope for forgiveness. Yeah. So unfortunately, this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, there is more to come. I'm going to be talking about the 12 touchstones for well-being of a family with Julia. And she's also going to share with me the three things that she knows deep down to be true. So if you'd like to continue with the conversation, it's very simple. If you are on an Apple podcast listener, you'll find a, a way to Uh, subscribe directly there. The same for Spotify, or you can support me through Patreon. And that is very, very welcome. And here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.